John the Baptist knew full well that Jesus was the center of all things. John the Baptist knew full well that the only reason he was alive and had the ministry that he had was to point people to Jesus. That's all he was there for. Um, before you leave, if you haven't already, there's some um, there's a stack of of uh, papers, um, the devotionals, um, seven devotionals that you can take home with you. Um, I'm going to write. I'm going to pass out a week's worth every Sunday. Uh, what they are basically, they're Advent devotionals to help prepare our hearts for Christmas. Sometimes it's it's difficult around this time of the year to keep reminding ourselves that it's all about Jesus. Our whole life is about Jesus. And this Christmas time, it's a time when we have a stage already prepared for us to glorify Jesus. Uh, but often, most of our minds are spent thinking about what we can purchase, what we might receive, who we might spend time with, that we don't actually really give Jesus the focus that he deserves. Um, so really, the, the purpose for these devotionals that I'm passing out is just to help us you know, just a little bit every day, reading through some scriptures, pointing us to Jesus' coming, why he came, uh, praising him for his incarnation, um, trying to help align our, our hearts and our minds with what this month could really all be about for us, what it should be about, um, and to prime us for the rest of the year. So if you haven't picked one up yet, please pick one up before you leave. If you'd like multiples, please take multiples. We can always print more off. And next week I'll have another, Lord willing, I'll have another set of, of seven for the following week for you to, um, to read through. But we just, you know, last week we discussed how important it is for us to, to glean from the heart of John the Baptist, who knew his purpose, who knew why he was there. It was just to glorify Jesus. That's what he was there for, to make him manifest and when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist was perfectly content to start backing off so that people would stop looking at him and start looking at Jesus because Jesus was the one who was worthy to be seen. <clears throat> and today we're going to come to Matthew chapter 14, verse 13, and we're going to see Jesus perform one, perhaps one of his most famous actions in all of Scripture. Um, if you bring this story up on the streets even. Most people would have heard of it. They're vaguely familiar with it. Maybe they don't know the details. And quite frankly, there's not a ton of details. There are some, um, but they would at least be familiar with this passage that we'd be looking at. Even for a non-church goer, there are some passages that people just tend to know, like the birth of Jesus, Jesus turning water into wine, the crucifixion, and the story that we're going to be looking at when Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's just one of the more popular stories um, in the scriptures on a broad scale. Um, and Jesus, in this passage, he has, learned, he has learned about the death of John the Baptist. Um, he says in Matthew 14, verse 13, Now when Jesus heard this, talking about hearing that John the Baptist had been beheaded, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot into the towns. Now we see Jesus, I mean, his intentions were to go and be alone. That's what he was doing. He, was, he had heard the news of John the Baptist, 
He knew that it was significant. Um, John the Baptist was there to roll out the red carpet for him. Their connection was intertwined from before the foundations of the earth were laid. So he's going, he's, Jesus is going away, perhaps to meditate on what's going on here, what had happened. John the Baptist is gone. Uh, perhaps he's going away to grieve um, the death of John the Baptist. Um, he knew, I mean, he would, technically they were cousins. I don't know how well they knew each other and all that type of stuff growing up. But they knew each other. Jesus had a connection with him. Um, even from birth, even from when they were in the womb, um, and Jesus is going, going away at the hearing of the death of John the Baptist to be by himself. But then a bunch of crowds decide, hey, we're going to go follow him. We're going to go where he's going. Not really sure what they were expecting. Perhaps they were expecting for Jesus to explain what happened. They all, you know, the crowds, all of, all of the people who dwelled in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee, they all honored John the Baptist. Many of them had been baptized by John the Baptist. Um, and perhaps they were looking for Jesus to explain what had happened. John the Baptist was a great prophet. He had done many miraculous works throughout the, throughout the land. He had baptized many. He had called, called many to repentance. People were very um, well aware of John the Baptist and his ministry and his significance and the fact that he had come from God. In fact, Jesus uses John, the fact that everybody knew John the Baptist had come from God and had been commissioned by God for a work against the Pharisees at one point um, to shut them up. Uh, that's another story, though. Um, and perhaps they were coming to hear Jesus commentate on what's going on here. But in verse, <clears throat> verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had <coughs> compassion on them and healed their sick. I want to sit on this for a little bit. Before we do, let's pray. Seek the Lord's guidance in this. Lord, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus, to know him better, um, and to help us to be more like him. You have not sent us into the world to be just a better version of ourselves. You have sent us here. You have called us to be like Jesus. You have called us to go do the works of Jesus, to be like him, to glorify him, to praise him, to make him known in the world. Help us, Lord, to not be satisfied with just being better than we were yesterday. I just pray that it wouldn't be about us and what we want to make of ourselves. But I pray that we would see Jesus and simply follow him and to keep our eyes on him rather than on ourselves. Let us learn from him from his meekness and his compassion and take his yoke upon us and find rest for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Jesus perhaps was grieving at this point and this crowd is coming around him. Perhaps he, he just really wanted to be alone with his father. Perhaps he wanted to spend some time in prayer. But lo and behold, thousands of people are gathering around him. He didn't even have to put out a, a flyer saying, hey, I'm going to be at such and such a mountain at such and such a time on such and such a day. I mean, even if we were to do that, how many people would show up to some event that we were putting on? <laughs> we could have entertainment, we could have vendors, we could have popcorn and 
and hot dogs and ice cream and, you know, and have a big, you know, make a big to-do about some event that we were putting on. And maybe we would get some pocketfuls of people, you know, for Ohio days, you know, several hundred people come out. But here, Jesus, all Jesus did was go and be by himself. And thousands of people are gathering around him. I mean, people wanted to hear from Jesus. He was profound, not just in his speech, but in his actions. Everybody knew that he was a special man. Everybody knew that John the Baptist was also a special man. And now out of the two special men who were living at that time, only one remains. They all gather around and Jesus, instead of being annoyed by all their presence, he looks around and he has compassion on them. And it says he, he, he heals their sick. So he thousands of people. Now later, in the, later on in the story we find out that 5,000 men were there. But that's just the men. Who knows how many women and children were also there. And it's just, the, I mean, can you imagine just on the countryside, this swarm of people just on the side around this this small mountainous region. And Jesus is just walking through them, passing through all these people. He was going to be alone. He was going to spend some time in prayer and meditation. But all these people show up and now he just, he looks at them and he doesn't see a job that needs to be done. He doesn't see, well, I got to do the work of ministry. No, he has compassion on them. He looks at them as, as a people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And he's, he walks among them. He goes through them. And he is healing them. He, all the sick that are there. He lay, perhaps he lays his hand on them. Or perhaps he speaks it or breathes on them. Or whatever it is. He's healing them. He's ministering to them. Because he loves them. And when we see this word compassion. Some of you might have a translation that says he was moved with compassion. And that when it, when it says moved with compassion. It really... And it captures more of what this word um, for compassion means. Now, just to give you up front, whenever the Bible talks about the compassion of Jesus, it always references some sort of action. It doesn't just say Jesus had compassion and went about his, and went about his day. Whenever the Bible talks about the compassion of Jesus, it's always, I mean, you can look this up on your own and if I'm wrong about this, you can let me know. But I looked it up too. But whenever Jesus is having compassion on someone, it's always followed up with a response of action towards those he has compassion on. You know, and in Hebrews 4, it kind of gives a little character trait, a little profile of Jesus. Just a couple verses here. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16 say... We do not have a high priest talking about Jesus who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. You know, this is portraying our Lord Jesus Christ not as a, not as a great punisher of weak people, but a great relater and sympathizer of weak people. He remembers that we are dust. David praises God even in the Old Testament. Thank you for not dealing with me according to my sins. Because we know that if God truly dealt with us according to our sins, we would be far worse off than we are, wouldn't we? 
And we see that Jesus, and the, the author of Hebrews, he wants, to portray, he wants to make sure we portray him correctly. That he is not a high priest who is just up there barking out orders and punishing those who disobey, but he sympathizes with our weaknesses. That word for sympathy is very closely related to the word for compassion. Because he has been, he's been where we are. He knows what we're going through. And he's looking at, and in this passage in Matthew, he's looking at these crowds and he's seeing, their, he's seeing them with his eyes and he's seeing their suffering. And his heart goes out to them. And many of us, we, we have a heart that has gone out to people before. But we need to look deeper even more into this word compassion. The word for compassion comes from the Greek word esplanknizomai. Now, say that five times fast. Esplanknizomai. The root root word there is esplanknon, which is a word that we get the word spleen from. Um, It literally means... And without being too crass, because people thought differently about this word back then as we might think today, but the word literally means a bowel movement. Something that's moving inside of you that produces an action. Now, I don't want you to get too disgusted by this, because this is actually, I mean, uh, in my research, I discovered that the New Testament authors actually made up this word to describe the type of ministry that Jesus had amongst the people. A lot of people are going about to and fro saying, oh, I feel so sorry for you. Oh, I feel so sorry for you. I see your pain. But they do absolutely nothing about it. They don't try to help. They don't try to reach out. But Jesus, his compassion was a compassion that started, that was felt on the inside and always produced action. There was always a response. A number of different ways throughout the scriptures, when the Bible talks about his compassion, it's followed by healing of sickness, healing of paralysis, casting out of a demon, raising of the dead even. Um, And sometimes his compassion resulted in preaching to the spiritually lost. And again, this word for compassion is splanknizomai. It's really just getting across this idea that There is something going on on the inside that produces an action. Some of us have one or the other, right? We have something going on on the inside. We can feel for them, but we don't do anything. Or perhaps we're the type of person where there's nothing going on on the inside, but we know it's the right thing to do to kind of lend a hand, right? I don't feel for you. I don't really feel compassion, but it looks like I do because I'm helping you. Both of those miss out on true Christ-likeness. And I think, you know, some people will teach that love is an action. And I I think that's dangerous. Because love is not just an action. You can act all you want without love. I mean, 1 Corinthians 13 makes that very clear. If you do all these sacrifices and all these good things, but you do them without love, then it's worthless. 1 Corinthians 13 makes it very clear that there is more to love than just an action. The love of Christ is actually something that's moving on the inside of us. We feel something, we sense something on the inside of us. And that sense produces action. Now sometimes we don't sense 
anything. We see somebody's pain, but we don't sense anything. Does that mean we should not do anything about it? Not necessarily. Because sometimes the act of service helps instigate love. When you actually invest in a person's life, it helps you to love like Christ loved. Because remember, Christ is somebody who understands our weaknesses. Okay? And when the, when the Hebrews chapter 4 says, yet without sin, we have to conclude that that passage is talking not just about like physical limitations. Christ understands what it means to struggle to bear the weight of the law. Not that Christ sinned. I mean, that's the whole point of that passage. Christ felt the weightiness of the weakness of the human flesh, but yet he didn't sin. That's why he could fulfill the whole law for us, because he was underneath the burden of it, yet he was able to carry it. But while doing his ministry here on this earth, he, Jesus Christ, the bearer of our iniquities, understands the weightiness of them, and he understands that we are but dust. Okay? Therefore, he can have compassion on us. We struggle we struggle to obey. We struggle to follow perfectly. We struggle to follow a straight and narrow path our whole lives long. We struggle with that. Sometimes we fall off the side. And sure, we can't go about our lives saying, well, God will you know, be okay with me, whatever. You know, Paul makes it very clear that we should not presume upon the grace of God. We cannot sin so that grace can abound. No. We see God's abounding grace and we seek to obey Him all the more because of His abounding grace. But Jesus understands that we are weak and that sometimes that we will not be as perfect as He was. He understands that. He understands that sometimes in our life it is very heavy. Not that He approves of our sin. Not that He approves of our our uh, inability to follow him perfectly. When we sin, Jesus doesn't say it's okay. Just like the woman who was caught in adultery, he said, I forgive you, but go and sin no more. He was disapproving of her sin while also being compassionately forgiving. Because that's how Christ is. He's not going to compromise the glory of God for the love of people, but he will carry both. He will carry both the glory of God and his love for people because he loves both. And I want to just, back to this compassion idea, we must remind ourselves that perhaps what it means to quench the Spirit, you know, the Bible talks about quenching the Spirit, is to have the sensation that you need to do something, but then you say, no, I won't. God gives you that. You, you see the first fruits of compassion where you, where you can see, you can, you can associate, you can sympathize with a person's weakness or their need, but then you shut your heart against them. That would be quenching the spirit. Because Jesus, when he saw a need, he had compassion towards a need, he acted. Now that is not to lay a burden on our shoulders to constantly be bankrupting ourselves. Because then we're putting ourselves in a burdensome position to other people. 
And quite frankly, Jesus, and like in this situation, he's seeing these thousands of people and he's going around healing them all. He could do that. I've never done that. I don't know whether or not the Lord would ever bless me with that kind of a ministry. Most of us aren't going to be seeing thousands of people, having compassion on them, and then going and healing all the sick people. That's probably not going to be our ministry. We have to be realistic of the fact that we're not going to be able to help everybody that we are compassionate towards. However, as John says in his first letter, if you have the world's goods, okay, so basically you have an ability, you have something that somebody else doesn't have, and you see that somebody else needs it, if then you shut your heart up against them, how can the love of Christ abide in you? John teaches that throughout his whole book. If you can help them, but you choose not to, how can you have the love of Christ? I mean, it's a hypothetical question. You don't. Because the love of Christ is, I can help these people, I will help these people. I love these people, they have a need, I can fulfill their need, I will fulfill their need. That's the process of Christ's love. Sometimes the process of our love is, I have plenty. I see that there are people in need and my spirit goes out to them, but I will not help them. Because I have my own kingdom that I'm trying to establish here. My things are more important to me than God's people. When we see the church first being established, it was a perfect example of how the peoples, in the beginning of Acts, how the people's worlds were turned upside down. They now only valued all the heavenly things. They were willing to part with whatever they could part with in order to help a brother or sister in need. It's not necessarily prescriptive that we should all be selling our houses and lands. However, it does show us what the Spirit does within those who are following Jesus. It produces a heart of love that will act on behalf of other people, rather than a heart that will only act when it benefits oneself. We will only, I mean, American love, I mean, in America, there's plenty of people giving to charities. And that's great. That's fantastic. There are plenty of people giving to church. And that's great. That's fantastic. And I'm not saying that we should all bankrupt ourselves. And, but the problem sometimes comes that we are only willing to give when it's not painful to us. We're only willing to give when we feel like we've had enough given to us. When Jesus' love is, I'm going to give and I'm going to give and I'm not even going to get, think about what I'm getting. I'm not even going to think about what this means about my living conditions. I know I can help them, so I will help them. That's the love of Christ. That's what this word for compassion means. It's a sensation that's internalized that externalizes itself. It's something that's internal that produces an external reaction. That's what it is. Like I said, the biblical writers actually made this up. You can't find the word that they used for compassion in any other ancient Greek literature. It just isn't there. It's only in the scriptures. They made it up just for Jesus. <laughs> because Jesus is unique. 
The world is not like Jesus. The world can mimic Jesus to a certain degree. But it will always be missing something. It'll be missing the action. It'll be missing a true heart. Jesus shows us what it means to be like him. We must be careful that we do not live our life acting like everybody's okay. We live our lives thinking everybody's okay when we don't actually reach out to help the people who are actually not okay. Again, I'm not trying to lay a burden on anybody beyond what the Bible is laying upon us, but if the Bible lays a burden upon us, then we must look to it that we obey it. When we see Christ, and then we learn that we must love like Christ loves, we must see how can we love like Christ loves. It is beyond my ability, and that's why if we're not living a life that requires faith, then we're not following Christ. A lot of what the Bible teaches that the world doesn't want to accept is the elements that force us into living the type of life that requires faith. Because it's beyond us. Because it's a life that nobody else is really living. Let's continue. So he has compassion on these people. He healed their sick. Now in verse 15, when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. And the day is now over. Send the crowds away to, the, to go in the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. Now just imagine being there and having Jesus tell you this. Again, he's telling them something outrageous. He's telling them something that he already knew that they couldn't, they couldn't take care of these people. Jesus already knew that. And in fact, if you look at John chapter 6, this is a parallel passage to what we're reading here. In John chapter 6, Starting in verse 5, it says, Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward them, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this, in verse 6, to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So Jesus knew all along how the disciples were going to react to this. He knew all along that what he was telling them was a little bit outrageous, and he did it on purpose. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He already knew that he wasn't going to really send the disciples out into the villages to buy bread and, and, and bring jugs of water and all these types of things. He already knew that none of this was going to happen. But he's testing his disciples to see how they would react to him. And then back in Matthew chapter 14, In verse 17, it says, They said to him, We have only five loaves here and two fish. In John 6, it goes into a little bit more detail. Philip answered, 200 denarii, or 200 days worth of, of money, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many? So already they're well aware that what Jesus is asking of them is outrageous. Now, none of them is going to criticize Jesus because he's their rabbi. But they are going to point out to Jesus, Jesus, this is a little bit unrealistic for you to ask such a thing of us. While we have here, okay, we've, 
we've scanned the perimeter, okay, we found a boy who has, who, the only boy out here out of thousands of people who happens to have a lunch. I find that to be a little strange. Nobody decided, nobody thought that it would be necessary to bring some food out in the middle of the desert for an all-day retreat. I think that's interesting. But this boy is probably his mother's idea, right? Mothers always think of these things. It's probably his mother's idea. If you're going to be out there with Jesus, you need to take something to eat because he talks a long time. <laughs> you know, so she thought ahead of time. So this boy, they bring this boy and he's willing to offer his, his little lunch of five barley loaves. Barley being the, um, the most available type of, of wheat in that day. Um, and how does Jesus, what does Jesus do with this? You guys remember? He says, bring them here to me. In Matthew 14, verse 19, Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now, Rich read a passage um, before we started here, talking about Elisha performing a similar miracle. He had 20 barley loaves, and he fed 100 men with it. Okay? Now, these barley loaves, now we have to think, we have to it's not a big old piece of bread that you might get from Panera or some other bakery. These are little, these are little flat uh, medallions, essentially, is what we're talking about. In both the Elisha passage and in this passage, they're about this big. They're pancake thin, not IHOP pancake, more like your homemade pancake <laughs> when you don't put enough batter in it, right? And it's too watery. So it's a thin um, barley medallion. And the kid had five of these. In the Elisha passage, he had 20 of these. But for 100 people in his case, for 5,000, you know, maybe more like 10,000 people in Jesus' case, there was no way that any of this was going to be satisfactory. But what does Jesus do? He blows their expectations. And I like how John proceeds with uh, the story in, in John chapter 6. Because when you move on to verse 22, so there's, a, there's another passage that we'll get to about you know, Jesus walking on the water and he calls Peter out and that type of stuff. We'll get to that um, next time. But if you hop over that and you get to John chapter 6, verse 22, Jesus elaborates more on what happened here. Because he goes to the other side of the, the lake. Everybody's trying to figure out where he went. Um, and John chapter 6 actually elaborates a little bit more that, um, let's see here. In John chapter 6, verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were going to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Matthew doesn't include this little part, which I'm not really sure why. It seems like a very important part, especially for a guy who's coming from a perspective that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of the Jews. Uh, but that's something maybe I can ask him in heaven one of these days. About 8 o'clock last night, I came down with this massive cold. Just for you guys today. Blessings to all. So these people saw this great 
miraculous feat that Jesus just performed. Now, they've seen him do all sorts of miracles. They've seen him healing people, casting out demons. He's even raised somebody from the dead. But now they choose this time to decide to make him king, right? I mean, that seems a little bit strange. Perhaps it's simply because he just fed like 10,000 people (laughs) all at once, right? And they're comparing it, and Jesus in his... And how he addresses the people in Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 22. He calls out their, their, uh, their false intentions. He says in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You're not seeking after me because you really want a Messiah. You're seeking after me because you want somebody who's going to satisfy you. I mean, doesn't that sound like... a a big portion of Christianity today. A lot of us call ourselves Christians, but we don't really want to follow Jesus. We want a Jesus who follows us. We want a Jesus who makes our life clean and neat and satisfied and, you know, gives us our fill of all of the things that we want in life. And, you know, he makes all of our dreams come true. And, you know, that's the type of Jesus that a lot of Christians want to follow. And in fact, you know, this is exactly the type of person he's addressing here because he talked to them about how they must take him in full. He, they, the people must follow him. They must eat his body and drink his blood. They must be so consumed with the life of Jesus that their own life dissipates. And after this, after this discourse that Jesus has with these people, most of the people walk away. 10,000 people were there. But then after he preaches to them about devotion to himself and his ways, he's left with about 12 (laughs) out of a previous amount of about 10,000 who were ready to just make him king. Now, there may have been a few more left. Perhaps Mary Magdalene, maybe his mother was still there. Some other stragglers. But do we really want to be like Jesus? I'm not going to... There's some other things we could talk about in this passage, especially especially this discourse on him being the bread of life. You know, the people were remembering Moses in the wilderness and how Moses brought them the manna from heaven. And Jesus corrects them. He corrects their thinking. Moses didn't give you anything. God gave you everything. <laughs> Stop praising Moses for everything Moses gave you. Jesus is the one who gives... Everything. Jesus gave your forefathers the bread from heaven in the wilderness. And behold, someone greater than Moses is here anyway. I am the bread of life. I am the bread of heaven. Whoever eats from me will will be satisfied and will never die. But the people didn't want to follow Jesus. They wanted Jesus to serve them. And this, is just, this mindset is what plagues the world's Christianity today. It really does. You look around, you see the things people say about Jesus, and you see what turns people off to Jesus, you see what kind of churches that people you know, will attend, and if they make changes, then they'll leave. And you know, People want to be satisfied. We just want to be satisfied. You can blame social media, blame television, and all these different forms of entertainment that we're bombarded with today. Blame whatever you want. Really, 
you can't blame anything except our own sin nature because we're the ones with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The things around us don't give those things to us. We already have those things. The things around us simply instigate them. We have a lot of instigators, don't we? Constantly reaching out to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that cause us to just go to the right and to the left. And we're so thankful that we have a Jesus who understands us. Well, we have to acknowledge the fact also that we are still responsible. Just as Peter concluded his message in Acts chapter 2, save yourself from this crooked generation. It's, always, it's constantly trying to tear you away from Jesus. It's constantly trying to tear you away from the grace of God and the truth. Save yourself from it. And the Bible talks a lot about how the people who don't have self-control will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a person without self-control is going to be taken away from Christ. Taken away from the way. But the Spirit gives His people self-control to know the way, to follow the way, to have endurance. Because we naturally just want to be satisfied. We just want to be happy. We want to eat the comfort foods. We want to, you know, wear the comfortable clothes and live in the comfortable houses. We want to go to a church that's comfortable and doesn't really hurt our feelings or anything like that. Where we can just kind of sit, feel religious, and then go home and watch football and eat lunch. And satisfy ourselves with that. We... How many decisions does the average person make that simply revolves around trying to satisfy something that I want or need? And Jesus ends up just being another means to an end. That end being satisfaction. We just want to feel good about ourselves. We just want to be happy and we want Jesus to make it all work out. That's why we only pray when we're in trouble. Because we just want a Jesus who's there to make things work out. When Jesus was feeding the 5,000, he was doing it because he had compassion on the weak. He had compassion on the weak. People who, they were out there, they had been out there all day with no food. He had already been healing their sick. There was already a, a lot going on. And he knew the people were hungry and he wanted to feed them. He wanted to, show, he wanted to give them a sign. Okay? He, wanted, he wanted to associate himself with Moses. I mean, why did he do this? I mean, there are plenty of hungry people around, right? Why did he choose to do this now? Well, he wanted to associate himself in their minds with Moses so that they could see that a better Moses has come. Not a Moses who would bring bread from heaven, but a new Moses who is the bread from heaven. The one who God did send to satisfy the need of their soul. I mean, that's ultimately the reason why he's doing this. And I like how in John chapter 6, he's, he makes a little uh, comment in verse 12. He says, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Why did he care so much about the fragments? Why was he so concerned that not a crumb of that food was lost? And why did he make more than he needed? Why didn't he just make enough to fill everybody and not have any left over? Why did he make leftovers? 
mean, there's purpose behind these things. And he, he kind of elaborates on it in, 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 uh, in chapter 6. In verse, starting in verse 37, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. I would pose that the reason why he had so much leftovers and leftovers in a basket of 12 referring to the tribes of Israel is that he is not going to lose them. Whoever comes to Christ, he will not lose them. He will not cast them out. He will not give up on them. That's the will of the Father. That's why the Father sent the Son so that he could go and get the lost sheep of Israel. And he was going to be faithful to them to the end. So when he's making all this food above and beyond in exactly 12 baskets, it's a sermon to the people in a picture format, saying, I'm come to get you. I have come to support you. I have come so that none of you may be lost. I have come to be your savior. I am the new Moses. I am not somebody who is simply a a vessel to bring bread from heaven at the hand of God. I am the one that the hand of God has physically given you to satisfy, to fill, and to save you. That's why this passage is here. It's a sermon. It's not just another miracle to add to the to the plethora of miracles that Jesus has performed. This is a sermon to Israel saying, I've come to get you, the lost tribes of Israel who have been in exile for centuries. God has not given up on you. He's not going to throw you away like leftover trash. He's going to gather you up and he's going to be faithful to you. And he's going to give you salvation. You don't have to drink from the broken cisterns anymore because I can actually satisfy you. That's why this is here. To tell the people that he is the one that, that he is the end of all things. The only one they need to look to. They don't need to wonder where John the Baptist went and what he's doing and what the whole purpose was. All they need now is Jesus. That's all they need. And that's what this is here for. That's why John the Baptist's death occurs right before this. Because the people needed to see. All they needed was him. But they needed to seek him rightly, in faith. Seek seek the grace of God in Christ Jesus. That's what they missed. Still, they were looking for someone who would just satisfy their wants. Satisfy their flesh, just like Moses did in the wilderness. Moses satisfied their flesh. He kept them alive. But Jesus came to give them spiritual Life, eternal life. But they weren't interested in that. They weren't interested in that. They just wanted the food. They wanted physical provision. Jesus came and he made it clear in this teaching that he came to give spiritual teaching, to lead them to an eternal life with the Father through him, empowered in this life by the Spirit. And let us get let us get that. 
the few that are here today, we have a small crowd, this small, can I say small crowd? Is that kind of like jumbo shrimp? <laughs> small group today, but let us, let, let, let us get it. Let us see, if we don't have the compassion of Christ that's really like him, let's pray that we would. Let's start actually looking at people. Sometimes that's where we need to start. We just look at them and see them. Sometimes that's in the busyness of our life. We don't see anybody but ourselves. Because we have our own problem. We have all the problems in the world on our shoulders. We just see that. But sometimes we need to sit and just look at people. Think about other people. Meditate on other people. So that we can be Christ-like to them. Christ being the center figure of our life. The one who satisfies us. We look all around us for satisfaction. All the people in our lives, they have to satisfy me. And if they don't satisfy me, then I, I'm, I'm upset with them. You're always such a toxic person that I need to shovel out of my life. Let us look to Jesus, the bread of heaven, the bread of life. And let us go and see how we can share compassion on the world. God, give us your grace that we may learn far beyond the things that have been spoken today. Give us grace to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.